Guten Podcast. This is Alex from EE Phone Poem, the podcast you're listening to right now. Just a little warning, uh, the podcast of today, today's podcast, Podcast Azure, we are covering a poem that has some erotic imagery in it, and as such, we make some silly sex jokes. Nothing too raunchy, but, you know, good to warn. That's definitely our philosophy here. So, without further ado, without further ado, what was the cruelest month again? April is the cruelest month. Breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Did you check if that's a reference to Edmund Olick Spencer? Long way out, speakers make you bob south. On and mouth, rose pretty pilgrims drop rocket with Jeff Chow's. Mother wrote analysis, not poeturalysis. Get the Shelley phone bill SPA'd up by Roan, Lord. He's coming back to phone home. What? He's coming back to phone poem. Oh. Oh. Hello there. I didn't see you go in. This is EE Phone Poem, the podcast where we analyze poetry. I'm Alex Dorada Wolf. And I'm Keir Willett. And today we're going to be analyzing a poem by Hart Crane. This poem is entitled The Visible, The Untrue. Yep. And so I am referencing this in a copy of the complete poems of Hart Crane from copyright 1958. But this looks like a 60s-ish paperback. It was owned by somebody named Abbott Frunnell uh, in September 1972. Abbott Frunnell? Are you sure that's the name? That's an amazing name. I'm guessing here, man. Um, Cursive. It's definitely Abbott something. Oh, man. Okay. I want to know more about Abbott Frunnell. Well, perhaps we'll discuss his poetry at a later date. Uh, I hope so. Can you send me the link again that has the version of the poem that matches yours? I... So while normally uh, we would be referencing Poetry Foundation, and they do have uh, a copy of this online, I think uh, just a, a scan of the uh, original source. So I'm inclined to go with the, uh, um, uh, what do you call that principle in translation where you go with the more weird thing? There's a name for that? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, I'll edit that in. Uh, the term I was looking for here was Lectio Difficilior Potior, uh, which just translates as the more difficult reading is stronger. So it's just Latin for exactly the words I said in English. Or nearly exactly. When you're referencing multiple sources, the way you pick the correct one is you go with the more unusual one. Sure. I mean, because, it makes sense because right. Right, uh, the others might just be defaulting to standard because it's standard. Exactly. While it would be weird to take a poem where every first line was capital and then make some of them not capital. So send me that link again. Sorry, I lost that. Uh, right, I am sending you the linky link. Oh, uh, before we get started, uh, what are you drinking? I am drinking a cup of coffee. I'm also drinking a cup of coffee. See, this segment gets funnier because every time we're just drinking coffee. <laughs> yeah, real funny. <laughs> funny if we always have a what you're drinking section and it's always the same thing. Could be. Before we launch into the poem, we should give uh, both the brief biography of the poet and kind of a little quick rundown of experience and feelings towards the poet. So let's talk a little bit about our poet today, Moostock. Crane was born in Garrettsville, Ohio in 1899. According to uh, poetryfoundation.org, uh, I just like this little quote from his biography there. Uh, his father was a businessman who produced chocolates and his mother was emotionally unstable and a hypochondriac. All right. That's all you need to know. Yeah. 
Right. Okay. So he was gay and had some struggles being expressing who he was at that particular time in history. Uh, I mean, it seems like he had a number of successful romances, uh, you know, relatively clandestine, and none of them lasted as long as he would have liked. He took a lot of inspiration from Whitman as a poet, also T.S. Eliot, apparently, but he thought T.S. Eliot was too nihilistic, wanted to offer an Eliot-esque vision of of, uh, the world through poetry, that didn't boil down to everything that was once ever even remotely beautiful is now dead. Seems like a a good project to me. I think it's very natural to read The Wasteland and feel, oh man, this is brilliant, but also it hates life. I mean, it is pretty much just sounding the death knell of poetry and everything else good. So it's hard to follow up as Elliot himself found out. Yep, so he decided to spend his time writing plays about how the King of England was the Pope. Is that what his plays are about? I don't know. Uh, Are you going to read late Elliot? I hear good things about his plays. You know, they're not at the top of my list, but I I do hear that they're smart. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they're smart. Elliot never had a problem with being dumb. Although he says a lot of dumb things for someone so smart. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm hesitant to read his plays because of his batch opinions about Shakespeare. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you could write a good play, but also be that wrong about plays. Be like um, a movie director who thought Ed Wood was the pinnacle of technical film direction, just hated all of the actually good directors. Seems like that person couldn't make good movies, you know? Yeah, uh, but you know, Elliot's opinions about poetry are not much crazier than his opinions about plays, and he writes good poetry. So what do we know? Maybe having bad opinions uh, critically is the key to being artistically successful. Maybe that's why we have so much trouble being artistically successful and have to run a poetry podcast because we're too right about everything. Do you know who else wasn't terribly artistically successful? Hart Crane. Wait, who do you mean? I thought we were doing a T.S. Eliot. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what, what What? joke are you doing? Is it? Are you doing a, the, the animal joke or a different joke? I was doing a we've been talking about T.S. Eliot for 10 minutes joke. Oh, let me go again. You know who else is? Yeah, you know who else is? Art Crane. He did not find much success during his life. Everyone thought his poetry was weird and kind of simultaneously archaic and avant-garde. So it was uh, running afoul of both the uh, traditionalists and the modernists. Yeah, it's just kind of what I like about him and kind of what annoys me about him. Because sometimes his nods to form just feel clunky and rote. And sometimes his avant-gardisms also just feel kind of for form's sake and... Sometimes he lands in this weird middle ground that I find unappealing. And other times he lands in this middle ground that I think is phenomenal. So, yeah, he's a he's a tricky guy. And, and he clearly was very hard on his own work and himself because he did not produce a ton of it. Yeah, his uh, the, the complete poems of Hart Crane that I have right here is a little slim, like 1950s, 60s paperback that is uh, just 180 pages. Uh, sorry, just 183 pages. Also, he did kill himself at the age of 32. So that is part of it. I suppose if you cut off a lot of poets' work by 32, it might not be that big. 
I feel similarly about Hart Crane. I think I think I might have a little more affection towards his weirdness than you do. Like there's a certain kind of lack of polish mixed in with that weird formalism that I find very appealing. As opposed to the poems that we've covered so far, uh, he is much more kind of the passionate, troubled poet archetype rather than the uh, wizardy formalist type. Yeah, yeah. When he's doing a more formal thing and it feels clunky to me, I think I think that this is a deliberate aesthetic choice for him much of the time. Yeah, I think he, I, you know, which is which is a strange and interesting aesthetic choice, right? Because you know the way that twentieth century English poetry ended up going was, of course, this total dominance of free verse. Not that I think that there's anything per se wrong with free verse. It can be it can be a powerful form. But I I do think it's a little ridiculous that it is the only viable option now. And this is sort of an untrod other path, right? Because a lot of the the appeal of, of free verse is that it has this air of imperfection and spontaneity. But Hart Crane does this thing where he he makes his formal poetry have that same effect. Yeah, I can't help but feel like he may have found a lot more success if he had been born like just 10 years later or something. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of other other poets who do a similar thing. And I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank, but there there must be some. Although we probably didn't pick a particularly good poem to discuss these issues because the poem that we picked is pretty much straight free verse. Yeah, we we ended up picking something that was very kind of spontaneous feeling. Still plenty of formal element, but... It's not terribly representative. So we'll have to do another heart crane at another point in time that is a little bit more representative, maybe a slightly more famous one. We'll do Repose of Rivers or something, but... Repose of Rivers uh, or the, the bell one. What's that one called? Um, the Broken Tower. Yeah, it's a really good one. But yeah, so this is a very non-representative Hart Crane poem, but um, I don't know, it just kind of jumped out to us. It felt very different than the poems we've covered so far. It's cool. While I think we may be somewhat critical of some of Crane's choices, at least personally, I have quite a bit of affection for the guy. And I think he is very talented, just kind of struggling to find, um, well, I want to say struggling to find his voice, but that sounds like uh, struggling to actualize his voice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so let's get into it. Uh, quick question before we do. Does your version of the title have a comma? Uh, mine does not. Okay, that's what I was seeing before, too. So let's assume it does not have a, a comma, which is more interesting anyway. Yeah, that, that's, um, that's how the poem kind of originally stood out to me, is that... Um, so once again, the poem is called uh, The Visible, The Untrue. Without a comma in between. The comma obviously rendering it grammatically clearer, but um, without the comma, it's cool and weird. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to get into the weirdness there. Yeah, so uh, let's, let's read the poem. Okay, I'll read the poem. The Visible, The Untrue To E.O. by Hart Crane Yes, I being the terrible puppet of my dreams shall lavish this on you. The dense mine of the orchid split in two, and the fingernails that cinch such environs. And what about the staunch neighbor tabulations with all their zest for doom? I'm wearing badges that cancel all your kindness. Forthright I watch the silver zeppelin destroy the sky. To stir your confidence? To rouse your sanctions? The silver strophe, the canto bright with myth, 
Such distances leap landward without evil smile. And as for me, the window weight throbs in its blind partition to extinguish what I have of faith. Yes, light, and it is always, always, always the eternal rainbow, and it is always the day, the day of unkind farewell. That's the poem. Uh, what jumps out at you? Maybe we should say a brief word about to EO. Uh, so EO stands for uh, someone who was Hart Crane's lover at one point. I think it's Emil Ofer. Ofer. Yeah, who was like a Dutch sailor or something. Yeah, and uh, it did not end well. Who was a Dutch sailor that uh, Hart Crane had a sex thing with. He seemed to be really into this guy. He wrote uh, his long poem, Voyages, also for Emil Ofer. So uh, definitely a big, a big presence in Hart Crane's life. I, it seems like this was, was probably the most dramatic love affair he had. All right. I mean, that gives us a little bit. But obviously, this isn't anything like a typical love poem. So I'm not sure how much that really gives us. Uh, and anyway, I'm always loath to to do poetry interpretation with too biographical a bent. Poets are writing to be understood by people that don't know the details of their lives. Or they would put the details of their lives in their poems, as confessional poets do. <laughs> yes, although confessional poetry wasn't a thing at this point. I think we can background that piece of info and just concentrate on figuring out what this weird poem is about. So um, let us begin with our standard run-through. Okay. Mm. All right, so very cool first image. So the first step bit. Yes, I being the terrible puppet of my dreams shall lavish this on you, the dense mine of the orchids split in two. It's a great opening. Yeah, okay. So immediately we're put in the context of a conversation. This this takes the form of an affirmation. Apparently someone is like, are you the terrible puppet of your dreams? Will you, will you lavish this on me? The dense uh, mine of the orchids split in two? And her crane is like, yeah, totally. Yep, so let's unpack with some of that imagery. Well, The Terrible Puppet of My Dreams is pretty damn cool. Yeah, not quite sure what to make of that, frankly. Um, Well, okay, I mean, I can see talking about the self that appears in a dream as a terrible puppet. I was reading it more as he, the speaker, uh, is the puppet whose strings are pulled by his dreams. Oh, that's an interesting ambiguity. Yeah. I think, I think in fact, your reading is probably uh, the privileged one here. That Now that you say that, that does make more sense. Yes, I am, I am acting not under my own volition, but... Yeah, he's talking about his subconscious, if you will, his, the desires and feelings of his dreams. Yeah. Well, oh, and that's interesting because that's not categorically opposed to my reading either. Because thinking of the self that appears in dreams as a terrible puppet 
Well, to me, that stresses the terrible because you want to see the self that appears in dreams as an extension of you, but you don't have anything like the like control over over yourself in, in dreams. So insofar as it's a puppet, it's a terrible puppet. It's doing what it wants to do. So the subconscious, as it were, is in control. So I think you could get that out of it either way. I'm getting a dream feeling from this poem, uh, not just because of the word dream either. It's a good tip off, though. though. It, yeah, the word dream does make you ask if a poem was inspired by dream imagery. A uh, hot poetry analysis tip. Take, for example, the dream songs of John Berryman. Might have something to do with dreams. But yeah, just, um, I don't know, the flavor of the imagery here reads a bit like the recap of a dream. Right. And also that dialogic context here, the implication that someone asked him this crazy thing that no one would ever really ask is, is very dream logic. Yeah. The question of what he's responding to, I think, is quite interesting. Um, but we will we'll return to that. I think I've gotten more of a grip on the rest of the poem. Yeah. OK. So, yes, I being the terrible puppet of my dreams. So that would be then he's setting up a causal relation, I believe, with what follows. I, because I am the terrible puppet of my dreams, I will lavish this on you. Would you disagree? No, I agree. I think that's that's definitely what it says. Okay. Um, uh, and what I am lavishing on you is the dense mind of the orchid split in two. Uh, very cool. Very cool image there. Yeah, that's uh, great. And um, of course, we'd be remiss not to bring up the uh, pretty direct erotic connotations of the orchid. Particularly, uh, Crane's poetry does have something of a reputation for, um, I guess the word is like crypto-gay content. He wasn't comfortable writing about his affairs with men directly, so he couched it in a lot of very esoteric imagery. Particularly, uh, orchids comes from the Latin orcus, which means testicles. Ah, I did not know that. Interesting. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, if you haven't picked up on this already, Alex is the Latinist and I am the Hellenist here. <laughs> yes. Um, every, every poetry podcast needs one of each. <laughs> two sides forever at war. But who will be the victor? <laughs> <laughs> but okay, that's that's cool. Uh, so there's a lot there's a lot of doublings in this in this phrase then. Uh, and it is our job then, I guess, to split these doublings. Okay, I mean, like, there's a doubling right there with the testicle imagery, if we're to follow that. And there's a another doubling when you're talking about a homosexual sexual encounter on on a level that's a little bit more up our up our comfort zone for analysis. Uh, there is a doubling, I believe, in in the the pun that he's making with mine. At least I would read this as a pun, wouldn't you? Yeah, what are the two meanings you're saying? Mine is in gold mine, and mine as in that's mine. Yeah, yeah, I think there is a pun going on there. I quite like both of those. I guess probably gold mine is preferred here, but... I think so. I think that that's mine reading is more interesting. More interesting. Um, yeah, the, those two meanings definitely both coexist. The, uh, the word order does uh, lend a little bit of weight to the gold mine interpretation. There's something very nice about um, that reversal there uh, in structure if it's using the, uh, the possessive. No, I really, like, I really like the sound of that. I really like the idea of, of mindness as an object. Yeah, no, I like it too. 
there's another doubling. We both like it. Hey. <laughs> no, and 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 okay. And so obviously if we read it as gold mine or some sort of mine, right? So the flower hides this significance, it hides this meaning. It's split in two and it's revealed. Yeah, sure, checks out. If we read it as the possessive there, it is the orchid is what is mine, which has been split in two, which I think you could read as, as a lovely image for coming to feel, uh, well, for what's mine is yours. You know, as uncomfortable as we are talking about sex, I do think this line and the next line really do uh, push towards a pretty strong image of a sexual encounter. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, the next line is, and the fingernails that cinch such break environs, and environs is all on its own on that line. Yeah, so if we take the gold mine interpretation, we get this kind of image of a person, like uh, go- a person going inside of a giant orchid and like clawing at it with their fingernails. Yeah. Which is very cool and also very sexual. Sure. Funny reading that orchid is a symbol for male sexuality. Yeah, I know. I mean, the flower is just so associated with with female sexuality generally. Yeah, I really do not know what was up with the Romans on that one. Like, who sees an organ and goes, oh, that's clearly balls. Yeah. No. (laughs) Silly Romans. (laughs) Okay, man, whatever you say. But Romans did love their ball jokes. Maybe that was the joke. Maybe it clearly doesn't look like like balls, but they thought it was funny. You know, that actually, that is a perfect summary of my understanding of the Roman sense of humor. <laughs> he said it looked like balls, but it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing it looks like is also a sex thing. Ha. <laughs> uh, yeah. Best play ever. <laughs> Talking to you, Plautus. All right, probably not directly relevant, although we can keep scanning for further possible Plautus references. Okay, uh, in the fingernail, do we get much beyond a further further sexual imagery here? He clearly wants us to think about the word choice here within Byron, since he's fine. Yeah, uh, there's no metrical reason to use environs there. No. And I just think that's an ugly word, too. I don't quite get it, frankly. Yeah, I don't get it either. Cinch such environ. Okay, uh, cinch is a good word there. I like that choice. Okay, no, there is um there is an open question with this line, which is, uh, it ends in a question mark, but there's no question. True. Okay, so I guess... Grammatically, the most obvious reading there is this is a thing that he may or may not also be lavishing on you. He's definitely lavishing the dense mind of the orchid split into. He might be lavishing the fingernails that singe such environs. The dense mind of the orchid is some kind of symbol for uh, the inner self, both physically and I think also more emotionally and spiritually. Yeah, it's it. Well, it's got something to do with the doubling of the self in the other, which I think then reflects back on the idea of him as a terrible puppet of his dreams. Oh, like, I, mm, you could even read dreams in the sense of, you are my dream. So I am, I, I am your terrible puppet. I am your terrible puppet. Yeah, um... The whole question of the lover as the projection of the self is a very common theme across all poetry. Not like every poem is about that, obviously, but uh, poems from all periods and in all styles do confront that concept. Not like every poem. All periods and in all styles. Yeah. 
Of course, but I like the reversal here. I love, I like that he's positing himself as the projection of the beloved here, uh, not the beloved well, the, as a projection out of him. I mean, I'm tempted to go super recursive on this. By all means. It's almost like he's talking about uh, himself as the projection of the projection of his lover. Yeah, because he's describing if if we're we're right here and if my dreams could be read as the lover that then that's already that is describing the lover as a projection. Uh but I'm right. the terrible puppet of that projection. Uh I I I'm the projection of the projection. I think it's right there. Yeah, which is super cool actually. Yeah. A slightly less recursive reading just to be fair because everything's not always recursive. <laughs> really? No. It always comes back to recursion. Notice we're not making some joke uh, where we come back to the start of the conversation about recursion to make a funny little recursion joke there. Play it out. We're too cool for that, man. Really? No. Okay, but a less confusingly recursive uh, interpretation there is that his projection of the lover is driving him to do things. So he's not necessarily the projection of the projection. It could just be the projection influencing him in just a circle rather than a spiral in on itself going back to the beginning thing. Yeah, well, you know, if you want to be bored, you can read it like that. Yeah, yeah, I just, I don't know if the uh, the recursive interpretation is quite earned yet. Fair enough. Okay, I do think that environs does point to circling, though, uh, because environs has a sense of circumference. Yeah, yeah, I'm tempted to look up the etymology there, but I am going to be strong. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. No, he really, it definitely does have a sense of surrounding. Uh, yeah. I'm sure of that. And he really does call out the word. Yep, literally means to surround, comes from Old French meaning to surround. All right. <laughs> this is a very simple etymology. It's very Frenchy sounding. We are correct in assuming the word means to be surrounded because that is what the word has always meant in like every language. Right, okay. So fingernails that cinch such environs. Yeah, I mean, the sexual reading is just so obvious and in your face here. I almost don't know what else to do with it. Um, All right, so sex stuff, moving on. Just a little break here. I want to make something clear. It's, uh, we're not uncomfortable with gay stuff. We're uncomfortable with sex stuff. If this was about uh, heterosexual sex, we would be exactly as awkward. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, just we haven't come up against this before, and it may, you know, give the wrong indication. No, yeah. Uh, talking about any kind of sex is equally scary. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're adults, hopefully. If you're not, cool. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> Unless you're like eight. <laughs> In which then, case, wow. Please write in. Uh, so sex reading there, you, you can figure it out yourself. Or, yeah. or if you can't, ask your mommy and daddy. Mommy, what does, what does it sex mean that the fingernails singe such environs? <laughs> I was listening to it. Uh, yeah, it's a moment in every child's growing up. Yeah, I mean, I think we all found sex through a poetry podcast. <laughs> uh, hopefully. And Moving on. Right? Uh, he's lavishing the orchid onto uh, his lover. Uh, but then he questions that he's also lavishing the fingernails. Right, and also there's an opposition plausible there because uh, the orchid is splitting uh, and the fingernails are cinching. And cinching has an implication of, of cinching shut, right? Right. So uh, my initial reading of uh, the, the questioning of the fingernails was that he's giving himself to this guy, but he's questioning whether that includes, no, this is recursive, whether that includes the giving of the giving. The giving of the giving. The what? There's probably a better way. 
way to say this. I um, think I know what you're trying to say, but give me a little more. Yeah, um, uh, the orchid, I'm just using, I mean, the self here. But he's questioning if he's giving the, if in giving himself to this guy, he's also giving his projection of the guy to the guy. That's really interesting. Might be a bit of a stretch, but I also, I know I see grounds for it because actually if you read this on a very literal level, you, you can imagine giving someone a flower and holding that flower by your fingernails. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, that's super interesting, too. Um, yeah. Giving someone a flower that is you, but then they go inside the flower? Take the imagery literally, and that's really weird and cool. And if we read the the fingernails as as metonymy here for for the hand, then am I are you giving the principle by which you give as you give the gift? Sure. Okay. Uh, I, I can I can buy it. Kirk, uh, uh, not to correct you here, that's actually synecdoche. Synecdoche is a form of metonymy. Yeah, but all right. Specifically, it is synecdoche. Uh, just to be clear, if you guys don't know what that means, metonymy is the poetic device in which you refer to something by the name of an associated thing, like referring to the king as the. And synecdoche is where you refer to the entirety of something by a part, like literally a fingernail means actually the hand. Yes. So thank you for your pedantic correction even though i was actually correct you are more correct i take my pedantic hat off to you sir i mean what else are we here for right i listen if you can't if you can't you know what let's do no point going on about that anymore um so yeah there's a lot of crazy doubling he's giving the flower to the guy for him to go inside but is he also giving the him that's inside the flower to him that's what he's asking all right let's go with that for now Uh, And now this next line, which I find to be the most confusing line in the poem. In what about the staunch neighbor tabulations with all their zest for doom? Do you have any idea what that means? Not really. I mean, okay, like just winging it. I feel like I can get something about... Uh, I don't like how much the abstraction of this poem and knowing that it is to Hart Crane's lover and makes makes me want to lean biographical here. Uh, but, you know, I don't have a lot else to go with. And I mean, I feel like that opening tells you it's to a lover. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. So, okay, uh, I can get something out of like the prying neighbors you know, who think it's the end of the world, uh, you know, to see you with your gay lover. It's weak and it doesn't really account for, I mean, the tabulations is like keeping tabs on you, right? Yeah, I get it, but stupid. If that's all the line means, then it's really overwrought and weird. So if, if it could mean more than that, I would be happy. Yeah, all right. Well, let's give it a go because that's that's really disappointing after the beginning of that stanza, if that's what it means. I mean, although maybe we're being a little unfair um, with our modern perspectives on um, homosexuality and stuff. Uh, Even then, though. Okay. I mean, Mm. all right. We factor in the the title here, right? The title suggests this equivalency between the visible and the untrue. So now, again, this feels just very 101, but I think it's important to remember that poetry has basic levels too. So on a 
poetry 101 level, having to hide yourself in plain sight, having to be in the closet, especially in this time in which the idea of being out of the closet was unthinkable, has a very, it's kind of, is a very literal and social manifestation of something like a, of a cryptic metaphysical principle, right? The idea that however you express are able to express yourself in the world is going to be untrue has you know a home in in a lot of metaphysical systems on the one hand and it was also just a very literal description of life in the closet on the other yeah um no you know um like even taking um the uh the gay stuff uh, out of uh just ignoring that for a moment mm-hmm. metaphysically referencing other people watching you and judging Judging you here does make sense. Right. There's a secrecy, there's a privacy bordering on secrecy that is native to love that that transcends the particulars of sexuality. One shares something with one's lovers that that is private in essence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, so just looking at it in terms of the principles of the various levels of being inside and outside oneself, bringing in third parties who are watching. Right, who are never going to be able to keep tabs on what is real and what is a dream, what is the terrible puppet and what is the self. The literalism of, of the outside observer who is not a part of this this dialectic of love is uh, is going to miss it entirely. It's going to miss yeah. what's real there. Okay, so um, you know, I think the line reads a little better if we if we're reading um, this stanza responding to uh, his lover here talking about the way in which he's giving himself to this person, mm-hmm. and then at the end he's just like, yeah, and what's everybody else even going to think? Like, I have no idea. Like that seems like a legitimate question that he doesn't have an answer for, rather than a rhetorical one. Right. Well. It's, there's something apocalyptic. There's a kind of obliteration of the self in this transaction of love that he's suggesting. But I don't think he means it apocalyptically. He means it, he means it in a much more ambiguous way that could be positive. But from the outside, it's going to look like, it's going to look apocalyptic. So the neighbors with their zest for doom are going to read this in, an, in a negative way. Yeah, you know, there's um, there's a really there there's a kind of paranoia in this line. Yeah. Um, which I think might connect somehow with the weird ass phrasing. Like it just seems so remote from these other people. Yeah. And, well, I mean, you know, li- I mean, it's literally paranoid in the sense of like, oh god, and all the neighbors are gonna think horrible things about us. Yeah. But I wonder how that paranoia explained the weird weird phrasing. Yeah, I mean. Right, like the the disorder of a confused, paranoid mind, something like that. Yeah, just compared with how poetic the language, again, poetic, um, with how well the language uh, up to that point flows. Like even when it's being non-standard, like the dense mind of the orchid split in two, that's, that's a very aesthetically appealing line. While what about the staunch neighbor tabulations is not <laughs> all right let's let's move on i feel like we've done what we can with that for now yeah i think you're right um neighbors what about third parties observing they always think bad stuff yeah basically all right so next line starts the new stanza 
I'm wearing badges that cancel all your kindness. Forthright, I watch the silver zeppelin destroy the sky to stir your confidence, to rouse your sanctions. That's the stanza as a whole. So uh, I'm wearing badges that cancel all your kindness. It's a very contemporary sounding line. Yeah, that was my thought too. Like I could see that in a song lyric or something. Yeah, I, or a very modern poem. It feels, yeah. there's a, it has a, kind of in-your-face irony to it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's good. Like those two first short, very straightforward sentences there that start this stanza. Badges that cancel all your kindness. Forthright, I watch the Zeppelin destroy the sky. Forthright is weird. Yeah, there's a little bit of Hart Crane's archaism sneaking back into this very contemporary feeling stanza. Although I, I, I like what the forthright is doing there, actually. No, me too. But all right, let's let's get into it. So what does wearing badges that cancel all your kindness mean? Okay, well, relating it back to the um, the interpretations uh, of the beginning with, you know, the questions of where the self begins and then ends and the other and the lover and the neighbors, all of that crap. Badges, adorn- adornments here. In this context, wearing something is an action which differentiates one person from another. To wear means to have on the outside. And so to have the badges outside of him basically deflecting kindness, leaving what what that means, uh, leaving that for now. Um, it's creating a very, uh, uh, with the clear yep. barrier between the two of them. Sorry, I just... I had, had a thought on neighbor. Okay, go. Uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, what if the neighbor is still the lover? Mm. I It just, given that all of that self becoming the other, that phrase just jumped out at me. <laughs> uh, I think that is worth considering. Also, like I could see a circumstance where in the early 20th century, neighbors could be used as a euphemism for two gay lovers. Right. Oh, this is my neighbor. Right, right, right. Especially in like a literary community where they were joking about, you know, the love thy neighbor thing. Yeah, no, that seems quite plausible. Where does that get us, though? I don't really know, because it's still a there. Well, okay, well, the tabula... Actually, we didn't consider this before, but actually, grammatically, there attaches to tabulations, not neighbor, right? Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I mean, so another way to read that is, what about all of the people who definitely count us as neighbors? Sure, what about the staunch neighbor tabulations? Like, because tabulations, they're like a vote. For all of the times we were counted as neighbors staunchly would be another way of phrasing that. But then the tabulations itself have the zest for doom. Well, I mean, there could be a perception of those votes as damning. Sure. I mean, again, I feel weird about leaning so much into the, this gay reading. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but... There's a paranoia attached to uh, attached to the loving here that is hard, really hard not to lean in that direction. Anyway, I, so I don't think that's actually really particularly adding anything new, but it's good to know that the the love thy neighbor implication doesn't change it anyway. Yeah, it's, it's still a question of how other people see them. Right, right. Uh, just as a wrinkle. Going back to badges. So um, wearing badges that cancel all your kindness, what that's setting up is a very clear barrier between speaker and the lover. Showing your kindness is canceled, is un- undone if I try to 
express what is going on here in a visible way. Like, I think that's the surface level meaning. I, I don't quite see that. I'm wearing badges that cancel all your kindness. I'm wearing badges as, an, as a form of expression, right? It's a public expression. Oh, okay. And that undoes your kindness, apparently. Like, I lose, I lose your kindness, or I make all your kindness for naught when I go around wearing badges. Which I think on a, on a self-reflective level could even possibly apply to the writing of this poem, hmm. right? The poem itself being a kind of, of badge giving public expression to the love or whatever this transaction of the, you know, I think we're maybe simplifying it, calling it love. <laughs> yeah, you know, love, the dense mind of the orchid. It's, it's a cliche. Exactly. So wait, what were you saying about the poem itself being one of the badges? In what way is it canceling kindness? I don't know, but this is, it has something to do with the fear of the public sphere that comes up in the last line, I think. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it is the feeling that the inability to publicly express, or rather that he has to express himself... Uh, Cryptically, esoterically. That does make sense, given the forthrightness of these uh, couple of lines here. Like, oh God, I'm being so freaking opaque here. Like, I'm denying what we have. Right, but it's... Is, but is the canceling of the kindness because the badges are cryptic badges or is it because they're badges? Is the cryptic nature the thing that redeems them or is the cryptic nature the problem? Hmm. I read it as the problem. See, I, I was inclined to read it the other way. So what's the problem then if it's not the cryptic? I'm inclined to say that the problem is trying to give expression to the inexpressible as such and and that the, the cryptic is the thing that that redeems it uh, or makes it at least forgivable, potentially. But, you know, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves uh, because he's not really giving us ammunition to decide that question yet. That's true. So, yeah, moving on to the next line. Um, forthright, I watch the silver Zeppelin destroy the sky. Huh. Well, on the level of talking about his own activity, that is not that very forthright. <laughs> uh, you know, love uh, where where, you know, the dense mind of the orchid split in two and and. And then where you uh, watch the Silver Zeppelin destroy the sky? Yeah. Well, clearly the Silver Zeppelin destroying the sky is sex. <laughs> Obviously. Um, I, I don't I, I don't think it is sex, to, to be clear. Okay, I mean, you're, the obvious parallel there is the Hindenburg, right? Which didn't happen yet, so never mind. Oh, good. Uh, all right, so good. We get to read that in a, in a more interesting way. Um, when was the Hindenburg? 37. Oh, okay, yeah. Five years after he died. Definitely not that, unless he was a prophet. Um, well, actually, okay, this is something that I have weirdly looked up. Is Hart Crane a prophet? No, uh, blimp explosions. Ah. Um, there are a lot more blimps that have exploded <laughs> than the Hindenburg. It's not even the worst blimp explosion. I mean, there had to be some reason why we decided these things were not going to fly. Well, no, it was the Hindenburg. Um, that, was, that was absolutely why that happened. Uh, yeah, but if that were an isolated instance, wouldn't have been enough to kill it. Yeah, I mean, it, it killed, like, all of the enthusiasm for it. Um, now, yep, the other big one actually happened before he died. Was it near Brooklyn? Um, let's see. Where, okay, so uh, for those keeping tabs at home, I'm referring to the USS uh, Akron, which is the blimp explosion which killed the most people. You mean for those keeping staunch neighbor tabulations at home? Okay, so uh, I know I'm calling them blimps when they're not technically blimps. These are uh, rigid airships or these are uh, rigid airships or zeppelins. 
uh, while a blimp is a non-rigid airship. But blimp is a fun word, and this is a poetry podcast, and I never get to say blimp. So I'm going for it. Um, Zeppelin's uh, a pretty fun word too, though, man. Yeah, b- b- blimp. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Blimp sounds like what it is in a cool way. Like your mouth makes the shape of a blimp when you say it. Yeah, it's nice. There's a Norman Gothic military chapel in Lakehurst, New Jersey, which features stained glass windows memorializing blimp explosions. Wow, cool. So I believe this poem was written in 30-something, right? I think it's late, yeah. Um, so the blimp explosion was 31. Well, it's possible, but all right. Uh, I don't think it's that important. Oh, yeah. I mean, this one website has it dated to 33, which was the year he died. So who knows? I think but, he died. Didn't he die in 32? Uh, did he die in 32? I think I it was so 32, man. man. Yeah, it was 32. So, so that's okay. clearly wrong. Uh, let me just check. Oh, no, it was published in 33, so it was published posthumously. Okay. So it's probably not exactly clear when he wrote it. You don't have to read it as an exploding Zeppelin, although I think it invites the possibility. You could also just read it as a Zeppelin that obscures the sky and the threat of violence in the choice of the verb destroy if it's just meant to mean obscure does point to the the possibility of the zeppelin's explosion uh it doesn't have to literally be exploding though what is the fourth right doing now describing the manner in which he watches i guess so so directly or uh straightforwardly (laughs) i watched the silver zeppelin destroy the sky okay um now why does he do this i mean what well right all right what does the silver zeppelin destroying the sky mean well, clearly it refers to the penis ejaculating. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a real stumper, frankly. <laughs> you know? Well, he doesn't even seem to know why he's doing this. Is he doing it to stir your confidence? To rouse your sanctions? This is what he asks. So it's not so forthright at all. And he's admitting that. To stir your confidence, so to, to give you confidence, to give you confidence in me, to give you confidence in Zeppelins, uh, to rouse your sanctions, uh, right, to make you mad at me and make you want to to lay down sanctions against me, to like make you want to lay down sanctions on Zeppelins, say that these things are, are really dangerous and we should find a safer mode of air transport. Uh, that's probably not what it's about. <laughs> Okay, he's observing a thing that is glorious and that is above him, but that is dangerous. You know, I think we can read some sort of relationship to love the lover uh, into this observation. Also, to stir your confidence, to rouse your sanctions, this could apply either to the watching of the Zeppelin or it could apply to the Zeppelin's destroying of the sky. Sorry, say that again? The questions that he ask, it's asked at the end of the stanza, to stir your confidence, to rouse your sanctions, they could apply either to the watching of the Zeppelin or the Zeppelin's destroying of the sky. I think the privileged reading would be applying to the watching, but this poem is doing wacky things all over, so it might apply to destroy the sky. I feel like I've heard the phrase destroy the sky used somewhere before. I'm just trying to remember where that is. You ever heard it before? Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell for me. All right. I'm probably like a revelations thing or something. There's 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 a revelations feel. 
I mean, we've got we've got it feels very apocalyptic, and we did have uh, we did have Z- Doom in the in the last stanza. So getting a little bit of apocalypse feel to the poem, I think, is is not wrong. Yeah, no, I, I guess that it, it really doesn't matter if it's a direct reference. The idea of destroying the sky is certainly very in keeping with something, uh, you know, Book of Revelations. Eh? Right, right. Okay, so then the question is, does this apocalypse or the watching of the apocalypse, is this positive or negative? Does this give the you in this poem confidence? Uh, do you want apocalypse? Do you want a beautiful apocalypse? One could imagine that, that this, this stanza might add up to asking, are you one of those with a zest for doom? All right. So Webster's Dictionary defines forthright as directly forward or without hesitation, frankly. Um, okay. So I'm wearing badges that cancel your kindness, forthright. I watched the Silver Zeppelin destroy this guy. All right. I think we've ignored the military aspect to those lines. Uh, soldiers have badges. Good point. And Zeppelin were military aircrafts at this point. And destroy this guy as a definite bombing feel. Yeah. So I don't know where that gets us, though. Um, okay. Rouse your sanctions. That's an odd turn of phrase. It's very political. All right. So what does that mean in regular English? In regular English, I think it just means to uh, provoke your disapproval. Right? Um, to make you say you can't do that. The detriment, loss of reward, or coercive intervention annexed to a violation of law as a means of enforcing law. So basically, it's like a punishment. That, to me, the rouse combines with that word to really privilege that meaning. Um, It can also, the number one definition is a formal decree. Right, but the, the rouse makes it seem like a negative decree. Yeah, it's one of it's it's an annoying word because it can mean two opposite things. It can mean approval or disapproval. I cannot read it as approval here. It seems so obviously to be a counter a counter possibility to to stir your confidence. And the rouse to me has a definite negative connotation. Unless you have yeah. a, a strong argument for it being positive, I see it more interestingly and more obviously being the counterexample. I'm inclined to say, screw this stanza. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm very confused by it. Uh, uh, okay, yeah. A consideration, principle, or influence as of conscience that impels to moral action or determines moral judgment? Yeah, I'm not, having, I'm not having a problem with sanctions. At least I'm not having any more problem with sanctions than I am with the stanza as a whole. Well, I'm just, I'm thinking that maybe it'll give... Maybe, maybe if we pick the right definition of sanction... It'll make the rest make sense. I think you're, you're that's some wishful thinking, man. <laughs> okay. Um, you know what? Let's just come back to it. Yeah. The most I get out of all of this is, are you one of those with a zest for doom? If, if I tell you, if I tell you right here, straightforwardly that I am, I want to watch the world go up in flames. Uh, would you be into that? Does it turn you on the way I watched that blimp explode? Yeah. Or or is that just another one of the badges that cancel your kindness? Or, yeah. <laughs> so is All it right. hot or weird when I watch that blimp explode? Yeah, there we go. That's <laughs> what that stanza means. <laughs> or like, you know, hot weird. Yeah, or yeah. 
<laughs> or yeah, or did you like it, but like in a way that also sanctioned it? Not no, not sanctioned. In a way that also roused your sanctions. Yeah, there we go. Arouse your sanctions. Perhaps. Arouse your sanctions. <laughs> Sanction obviously means penis. <laughs> <laughs> As does confidence and forthright and kindness. Sounds right. Yeah. And uh, badges are the butt. <laughs> okay. Next stanza. Okay. This stanza is interesting because it has a bunch of ellipses in it. Yes. All right. Let me read the ellipses. The silver strophe, dot, dot, dot. The canto bright with myth. Dot, dot, dot. Such distances leap landward without evil smile. And as for me, dot, dot, dot. End stanza. That is very elliptical. All right. So uh, returning to Webster for a moment, you may be wondering what strophe means. It is a rhythmic system composed of two or more lines repeated as a unit, as a unit, especially such a unit occurring in a series of strophic units. To the movement of the classical Greek chorus while turning from one side to the other of the orchestra. So in a in a in a Greek chorus, well, I mean the the, the first definition is just a broader application of its origin, and the second definition, so the the structure of a, a Greek choral ode had a strophe followed by. Uh, an antistrophe, which was the supposedly the would be delivered, would be parts of the ode, uh, lines in the ode delivered as the chorus went from one side of the stage to the other. Uh, so a strophe invites the strophe is awaiting a response. I think that much we can we can obviously apply to the context of this poem. So is a strophe is a strophe always the same lines repeated, or uh, are, do they vary? Uh, they, I mean, they can vary. It's just, it's a, it's a formal unit within, within a node, right? I mean, I think for our purposes, the only thing that matters is that a strophe is incomplete in and of itself. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's, it's like the thesis without the antithesis. Right. Uh, also note that the adjective is the same as with Zeppelin. Both of them are called silver. Yeah, that occurred to me. We'll come back to that because, man, that Zeppelin. Okay, then we get another poetic term, the canto, uh, which is Italian for song, but somehow became just uh, in in Italian poetry just a generic term for uh, you know any any length of a verse. So Dante's uh, Dante's Divine Comedy is divided up into cantos. Yeah, I think that's where most people would be familiar with the term. Yeah. Canto doesn't necessarily demand a follow-up in the way that the strophe does, but it also is a unit within a greater whole, if we're thinking of it in a Dantean context. Right. Okay. You wouldn't call a unit into its a unit unto itself a complete work a canto. Right. Uh, canto would be a subsection of a greater work. Right. Okay. So we're we're continuing in part with the theme of parts here. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, the doubling there, of course, uh, and particularly uh, with the uh, the two part nature of the strophe, um, you could see that as the first bit, and then the canto as the second bit. Because just looking at it on paper, it does look like the silver strophe. Then the dot, dot, dot kind of look like some space on the stage between them. And then the canto. Right, right, right. Oh, that's weird. Um, what? Just in my book, uh, there's no there's a space after uh, strophe, but there's no space after myth. 
uh, both of which have an ellipsis right after them. Yeah, I don't know how much we can do with that, but... Yeah, I just think it's weird, uh, especially it, it just visually disrupts it. Because if there weren't that space there or there were the space on the second one, those two uh, ellipses would line up perfectly. Yeah. Uh, okay, I, I need, I need, I need a minute. <laughs> Say funny things so that you don't have to cut this section. You're clearly going to cut this section. I'm a singing a song. Kier's in the thing. Kier's gone away. He needs a minute. Cut. It's long. All right. Okay, you're back. Yeah. I was singing that whole time. (laughs) All right. (laughs) <laughs> That'll be great. <laughs> yep, you're leaving that all in. Greek uh, Greek choral odes were, of course, sung, so I think that's that's appropriate. Yep. I wonder if he meant for this song, this poem, to be sung. Okay, so he's setting up two poetic units spaced apart by ellipses, and then such distances leap landward without evil smile. All right, well... I again, I don't like bringing this. I like that bringing this in even even less than I like the stuff that we were bringing in before. But um, I do happen to know that the, his lover here was a sailor. So, but I almost want to say he's, you know, the the interpretation from within the poem suggests that the leap landward is being done not from a a boat but from a zeppelin. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually think that's um I think I think that reading is stronger. Yeah. Now, okay. What are such distances? I guess literally he's saying the strophe and the canto are distances. Or he's referring to the space um the spaces between the strophes and the spaces between the cantos. Uh or in this kind the uh, you know, literally the meaning between the lines. Except the ellipses aren't really between the lines, but sure. Well, <laughs> The meaning between the words. Well, I, I meant in the case of, uh, like, imagine a different poem or piece of theater with strophes or cantos. The idea of the gap between strophe and antistrophe or, under, or between canto and canto. Right, right. Okay. And also bear in mind that this whole thing is structured as, a com- as one part of a conversation. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, a, that's an important... Um, yeah, I mean, this whole conversation is strophe without antistrophe, or possibly antistrophe without strophe, right? Yeah, these these could be responses to... Um, to an original we never get. Yeah, I mean, maybe the original explains the Zeppelin. <laughs> Let's hope so. So just uh, with all their zest for doom, they, like the guy's response is, our love is like a Zeppelin. <laughs> the Zeppelin symbolizes this. That would be really nice. He also does invite us to read that puzzling last stanza again with strophe in place of Zeppelin. That does not get me anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I watched the silver first part of a Greek choral ode destroy the sky. That doesn't make more sense to you? Oh, of course. He's talking about the ancient Greek magic poems that destroyed the sky. They were known as the silver odes. Yeah. uh, Well, all right, all right. Okay, this is a... This is a f***ing stretch, but, you know, whatever, we are struggling. Okay, if you read Silver Strophe in there, Destroy the Sky could be about the way in which uh, Greek theater brings the gods down to earth. 
And I would say that this is insane, except that Silver's Trophy is followed by the Canto Bright with Myth. So he is inviting us to think about myth. Right, okay. I mean, again, with the way this poem is playing with identity and uh, doubling and all of that crap, um, the distance between heaven and earth certainly fits into that equation. Yeah, and the question of, you know, the projection of the lover as dream is not so different than the projection of, of the lover as God, as a God. Well, okay, I mean, that... Yeah, the distance between Earth and Heaven, that's, it, is, it is a plausible interpretation of such distances here. Uh, the ellipses might be, might be those distances. I mean, okay, um, going back to the first stanza with the reading of um, Lover as Dream, that's not a million miles away from Lover as Poem. Um, the idea of, you know, they're both different ways of saying, of referring to the lover as the construct of the speaker. Or poet. Um, sure. And then there's, you know, especially with a reference to a Greek context, um, you know, the, the, the Greek gods are, const- are very obviously constructs of, of the poets, right? The poets, you know, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing sacrilegious about, for the Greeks about admitting that, you know, well, obviously they don't think you know, a, a devout Greek doesn't think that the poets made up the gods, but the god, but the poets explicate the gods, and they don't have a problem with that. So there's an identity between between the godlike and and the poetic, uh, at least a, an intimate relation. All right, this is a you know uh, an A equals B equals C scenario, but if we assume Strophe is the lover or an aspect thereof, and then we replace Zeppelin with that does that make the zeppelin make more sense like the god created by the poet the lover god thing created by the poet is the zeppelin that destroys the sky so then it's uh to stir your confidence to rouse your sank to stir your confidence to rouse your sanctions um i could see someone saying that to a to a god you know imagining that he's created a Zeus or something. And then Zeus is just like wrecking all the airplanes with thunderbolts. And he's like, well, does it make you proud of the way that I'm just standing there and watching you? Or does it make you mad? I think you're reading two definitions of the lover into there because the lover would be manifest then on one level as the Zeppelin. And on the other hand, the principle behind the destruction of the Zeppelin. So... Which I think makes sense because then because the lover is both this projection and the thing that inspires the projection and can ultimately shut the projection down just by saying, no, screw that. That's that's not who I am. Right. So going back to your your metaphor of the devout Greek, we are seeing, um, you know, the poet's image of the, the god and the real god, basically. Right. The poet's image of the god is Zeppelin, and the uh, the actual guy is like the um, the thing behind that destruction, you know? Right, right, right. Which is cool, and actually connecting Zeppelins and gods does make sense. They're a thing we created in the sky. Yeah, no, it's not insane. God is an airplane. Mm. God is an unsustainable type of airplane. Although it wouldn't have been obviously unsustainable from Hart Crane's position here. Well, no, it would have been because there have been Zeppelin explosions. Sure. 
So he's making like a Zeppelin is like a god that blows up, which I think is a good description of a god. That's actually pretty cool. That makes that make more sense. So let's go with that. <laughs> no matter yeah. how twisted our logic to get there was, it's better to make some kind of sense than make no sense. Right. It's better to say that, well, clearly the Zeppelin is the lover as conceived of as a Greek god. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Um, the way he and the way he needs validation there to stir your confidence, to rouse your sanctions. Right. He, he's not able to explicate the Zeppelin because the image that he's creating is beholden to a principle that the image cannot fully encapsulate. The Zeppelin that he's created is more powerful than him. He's the puppet of his dreams. Exactly. All right. And then even beyond that thing that's more powerful than him, there's the real person who's even more powerful. Right. Now, that's good. That that tracks. Okay, back to distances leaping forward. Landward. Uh, yeah, sorry. Distances leap landward without evil smile. Okay, couple of things. The distances are leaping. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, evil smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this tracks with how we're interpreting this. The the thing that is in the distance becomes the distance. That's similar to the idea of the Zeppelin that destroys the sky and the principle behind why the Zeppelin has to destroy the sky. The positing of a distant thing is inseparable from the positing of of the distance between you and that thing. If you make up gods and say that they're distant, you can't just subtract the distance and have that be enough to make them close to you. Right. I agree with all that. Yeah, no, I I think the, the distance thing is what you said. That was my initial reading, too. But yeah, the evil smile is weird. I mean, I mean, it's it's on an obvious level. I feel like it, it's an evocation of grace, right? Uh, when you're aware that that someone has power over you and they choose not to exercise that power in a way that is harmful to you. Right. That's 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 grace. One is grateful Uh whenever the angel doesn't deign to destroy you. Yeah, it just seems like a clumsy way of expressing that, you know? I kind of like it. I don't dislike it. It just, uh, it's clumsy in a very heart craney kind of way. Yeah. Like an an overly verbose person trying to pare it down. It doesn't feel out of keeping with the other strange turns of phrase in this poem. No, it, it all fits. Um, and I mean, if it, that evil smile thing to, re- to show up in a poem that I guess didn't have stuff like the dense mind of the orchid and staunch neighbor tabulations to kind of counterbalance the weird simplicity of evil smile, it would read as very amateurish. Uh-huh. But yeah, no, there's so many kinds of weird phrase within this poem that it kind of it ends up blending to me. Yeah, it's like um, when you use this many different kinds of images, Yeah, you have to do it on purpose. Sure. No one is going to just naturally be, you know, saying that they wear badges and cancel all your kindness in (laughs) in the same poem as, you know, fingernails cinching such environs. Yeah, and I also always like when poets imply an alternative as if the alternative were the most natural thing in the world. Right. Uh, right. So clearly not like, oh, my God, for once the distance didn't leap landward with an evil smile. So weird. Yeah. Just in terms of um, a very literal human reading of it. Well, a literal human reading of the crazy metaphor of the God creation leaping from heaven. It kind of reads as a but you um, can also be here without condescending to me, you know. 
you don't have to come down to my levels in a weird kind of scornful, ha ha ha, look how powerful I am, I can lower myself to you kind of way. Right. And then if we want to get even more literal, it's an expression of, you know, uh, a man who's, you know, uh, been heard in love a lot and is and is really amazed that, wow, you're actually being nice to me. Yeah. Oh, and the super duper ultra mega literal reading. He's a sailor coming home. Right. Without the evil, an evil smile. I could almost see as being like a, <laughs> you'll never know who I hooked up with while I was at sea. Yeah, no, totally. Thing. I think that that's probably the reading most people would see immediately. <laughs> Now that I think about it, as opposed to, you know, obviously when he's a god falling from heaven, <laughs> he does so without yeah. scorn. Well, you know, whatever. The literal is more interesting if you take the long road there. Yeah, no, it feels, yeah, it's a weird inversion of the finding the esoteric meaning from the <laughs> literal. Instead, it's like, oh, right, and he's also a sailor who didn't cheat on him. Got it. Okay. And as for me, dot, 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 the stanza ends, then last stanza... The window weight throbs in its blind partition to extinguish what I have of faith. Yes, light. And it is always, always, always the eternal rainbow. And it is always the day, the day of unkind farewell. So I have looked up uh, a window weight is a thing that would have been common in windows. Then I'm trying to figure out exactly what I looked this up as well. I can't really figure it out. I understand enough to know that it is the thing that makes it possible to slide open a window and have it stay open. Yeah, that's what I'm getting to. It's like uh, with old tiny windows, how you can like and then sometimes you can see like there's a rope you can sometimes see in the window frame. Right. Um, so through some kind of engineering magic, those old windows are able to stay open and shut at a particular point. And somehow this involves a counterweight presumably by changing where the based on what i know about simple machines it's like it functions as some kind of lever and i think the balance is changed by moving the fulcrum that or it's actual magic which i think would work really nicely with the myth stuff we've been doing like maybe a, a maybe your magic just like that thing that makes the window stay open yeah like maybe <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, baby, you are magic. Just like that thing that makes the windows stay open, or Apollo. <laughs> uh, it's definitely a poor, uh, poor, it's the poor man's I sing the body electric. <laughs> All right, we obviously then have a, a, a pun with blind partition. You know, I love my puns, but man, that is an obvious one. Oh, yeah. I feel like I should dislike that one, but in the conversational context of this poem, it actually kind of works for me. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It's just, it's it's in, in your face, obvious. Okay, so just uh, taking this literally based on our very complex understanding of how window weights work. It takes us about 45 minutes to understand how a window weight works. We look it up online. Uh, I wake up my wife and ask her, but eventually we do get it. Uh, so I've kind of cut out most of that conversation, but there are a couple of things we say in there that uh, we reference later or are insightful analyses, I believe. Um, so I've just kind of formed those into a little montage here. It'll end with one of us, is, will it be me or Kier? Ooh, suspense, discovering a picture that adequately explains how a window weight works. I think we can assume that the window weight, the blind partition, I think might be actually part of a, like, 
the place where you hide the window weight, the thing that separates it from the window and where you see it. Or it might be more metaphysical. Let's just assume that the window weights are hidden and or hard to see. In their hiddenness, they throb. Nothing sexual with that word. I cannot think of a single thing that is hidden and throbbing. No, no. Uh, um, we are, of course, referring to the heart. The most sexual organ of them all. You know, maybe let's just go with the heart metaphor for a second. I actually think that's a little stronger than the dick metaphor. They're coexistent. Uh, it's, it's weird how, how those are really two of the only things Rob is, is regularly applied to. Uh, let me just look up a picture of a window to see if it looks more like a dick or a heart. Dick. Really? Here, Google image this. Oh, wait, I found a diagram. <sighs> All right, quickly. No. Okay. How, do, how does it work? Where is it? Um, okay, there are two window weights, one for each pane. They are uh, behind a barrier, behind a wooden barrier, so you can't see them. So it was my thing of them being concealed behind a piece of wood. Right, but is that thing called the blind partition? Um, no, it's called the weight cover. Okay, so he's just doing a, a pun thing with the blind partition. Yes. A not very well-motivated pun. Um, or he's drawing attention to it being unable to see, and that's important. Right. Like, love is blind. With the evocation of the blind being justified, because there are blinds on windows. Which, of course, refers to the blind prophet Tiresias, who existed in a state of ambiguous gender and sexuality. Mm. Or possibly also Homer, who is said to be blind and is largely responsible for shaping the Greek conception of their gods. Ah, all right, so what you're telling me is that there is a throbbing cylinder hidden inside this uh, empty other cylindrical thing. Well, actually, it's a little weirder than that and reflects back to the beginning uh, with the orchid split in two. There are mm. two of them next to each other in each cavity. Oh, okay. Okay. Is a, oh, The window weight is a pair of throbbing cylinders in a rectangular space next to a window. You can let people draw their own conclusions. Clearly there could be nothing sexual about that because there are no rectangles in the human body. True. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an anatomy dummy. Although I am an anatomy dummy. Eh? Oh, Jesus. That's much like Hart's uh, blind fun. <laughs> it's it's about on that level, pro probably slightly below it. Okay, but I, I think that his blind pun, the, the primary reading really should be first as there's no light in where it is, second as in a love is blind kind of way, and yes, third as a stupid window joke. Right, okay, but why window weight? I mean, so the window weight is responsible for keeping the window open. So that obviously connects with the distances in the last stanza, the sky and the stanza before that. Okay, okay, well, so you have the two weights next to each other. Um, and yeah, okay, you, no, no, I, I'm getting somewhere here. You have the two weights next to each other that are connected by a rope. No, they're not connected, damn it. All right, I think we should not get too tripped up on the anatomy of the window. No, but it was getting me somewhere cool. But then I remembered that that wasn't the picture I saw and I'm wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is why it's best when our esoteric interpretations rest on things that 
cannot be disproved with Googling. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, we do know more about the Greek gods than a lot of people. But we definitely do not know more about window ways. Uh, you know, we might. <laughs> well, uh, maybe now that we... Uh, you know, I I think since we started this podcast, we have moved from a very <laughs> low percentile of the population in terms of understanding window weights to a very high one. Right. But you also have to factor in that our relatively low mechanical intelligence means that other people are probably capable of understanding the results of these Google, these Google searches much better than us. Now, to, to be fair, I have a I'm not the worst at understanding basic physical principles. OK, man. I, I read more science stuff than you do. Sure. OK, I, I do. I, I, my sure is not a sure of doubt. It is a, a, a sure of let's move the fuck on. How does this even work? Oh, oh, no, I get it. I understand. I understand. The counterweight is in equilibrium with the window. So when you move it, the counterweight bounces off in the same position. I got it. I understand how window weights work. It's actually super simple. Oh, my God. Have you seen the light? Yeah, I understand how window weights work. All right. So let's go back to the beginning of this. So as we all know, a window weight uh, is a device used in old windows that kind of holds them open at a particular point. Uh, essentially, uh, two weights are attached to each pane of the window. Uh, which are then uh, threaded through a piece of wood uh, in the window frame. Uh, and then the weights hang behind that so that when you move the window up and down, the weight holds the window at that position. Uh, because, yeah, the, the fulcrum becomes the point at which the, the thing is hanging. Okay, uh, so... It's actually incredibly simple. Beautiful. Uh, that, was, that was a beautiful description that... Uh, did not require laborious Googling and thinking about beforehand. So well done. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> it now. doesn't sound at all, at all like I am just having an epiphany <laughs> <laughs> after staring at a diagram for 15, 20 minutes. Okay. Now, the fact that uh, cylindrically shaped, well-hung weights are throbbing, I think we can mention and allow people to draw their own conclusions in that direction. Right. Uh, what's interesting is that the uh, the uh, the front and the back of these uh, standard weighted windows have both a front and a back pane, um, so the top or the bottom can be open or closed. Um, and that requires two sets of weights, which are parallel to each other, um, one for each front and back pane of the window, which really kind of blows your mind with the uh, multiple ideas of interiority and exteriority going on here. So, so what like, you're saying is that the they allow the window both to top and bottom? Yes. Um, yeah, so, no, okay. But sure. No, like, the, it, this interior thing is, is responsible for giving us access to exteriority. It, it's actually way more complicated than that. What I, it was like... It doubles up in a bunch of ways. No, no, I, I follow, but... Because, like, the two throbbing weights, there's nothing separating those. Mm -hmm. But they are separate, so it's it's like a three-dimensional three version of interiority and exteriority, including, I don't know, it's, it's weird. So if we imagine inside as the relationship, basically, maybe we have um, the window, which can either let things that are outside in or out, and either pane of the window can serve that function and requires both to be closed um, for everything to be kept out. Um, but then you have the weights, which are hidden in the window frame, so they're always concealed, not only from the outside, but also from the inside of the house. So these are like 
well, the hearts, the emotional centers of these two lovers, the kind of the driving force of something. So it's like there's an aspect of their love which they don't even have access to, but controls everything, which goes back right. to being a puppet of your dreams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so they're, they're the hidden principle that is responsible for the transition of the hidden into the visible. Right. So that's so the third axis I was talking about is this secret third thing that is inside interiority. Well, which is neither of interiority nor exteriority. Well, which is thing. well, it's it's uh, it's an ineffable interiority. It's a kind of interiority that cannot become exteriority, but is paradoxically responsible for the transitioning of normal interiority to exteriority. So I hope you all, you all can follow that. Yeah, I mean, uh, right. I think it's, I mean, okay, you could, you, could, you could put it like this, and this, this might not be entirely accurate, uh, but uh, love is, yeah, okay, this is, this is simple, but, but it, I think not 100% wrong, right? So love is this interior feeling this, uh, that you express, uh, and it becomes exterior. Uh, it, now, you normally, I mean, we have the, the sort of normal con idea that that you know when you express an interior, uh, it doesn't, it no longer reflects the interior as it actually is. Uh, but I think that this is this is sort of a weird, more interesting twist on that, um, because if that were true, then it's not at all obvious why we would want to give outer expression to an interior feeling. So you have to almost attribute the desire to express oneself to a different principle, right? Uh-huh. There needs to be there needs to be some reason why it's worth compromising the purity of the inner uh in the transposition to the to the outer. Uh there needs to be a, a drive that actually that actually loves this, that wants this, that doesn't that doesn't mind the corruption, but perhaps even embraces the corruption. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next bit, and I think that might that'll shed some light on the situation. The window weight throbs in its blind partition. End sentence. Same line to extinguish what I have of faith. End sentence. End line. Yes. Light is the first sentence on the next line. Okay, so we're right in continuing to read a relation between the window and the sky and the heavens and the gods, because here we have a, an explicit mention of faith. Yes, which is being extinguished. All right, and then I think the next line, at least the most obvious reading, would be an equation of faith and light. Uh, to extinguish what I have of faith, the interlocutor, we might imagine asking, by faith, do you mean light? And he says, yes, light. That's how I would read it off off the top of off the top. Yeah, anyway. yeah, that, that, that's my initial reading, too. So, OK, uh, so the, yeah. the, the window weight is throbbing to extinguish the light, which is weird because window weights don't do that. That's not within the power of a window weight. Right. It's weird. The, the window weights extinguish the air but they don't extinguish the light right it doesn't matter so all right i mean if we're going back to the super clumsy reading i don't like very much of coming out of the closet kind of revealing the truth of a relationship again which i'm not a huge fan of here because it's boring um 
But in that reading, uh, I guess the passage of air would be being public about the relationship and the window weights would be kind of the true core of that relationship, which exists apart from what anyone thinks. No one can ever see the window weight, whether it's open or closed. Okay, so, hmm. Again, I'm not a big fan of that reading, but. Hmm. Well, I still just don't see how that even can begin to explicate the fact that windows don't extinguish light. Well, light is a third thing. Fourth thing? Um, but again, it's just not an issue here. Uh, well, yeah, this is the first. Um, oh, wait, okay. The only other light thing in the poem before this is uh, the canto bright with myth. Um, yeah, I think there was implied light with the silver zeppelin destroying the sky. Uh, silver, yeah, I think silver we can also stretch to include light, but... And the implication of an explosion there. Yeah. Uh, but, hmm. You've got these two window weights next to each other in the darkness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, faith, uh, with the, the gods in this poem being the created image of the beloved. So he doesn't need faith because the truth of the love is in the dark. The image doesn't, he doesn't need to create the image to have the love or the relationship, but it's a necessary product because, I mean, there's a, there's still a window, right? Although why that's extinguishing, no, that doesn't make sense. Ah. No, no, okay. No, I think you're, I think you're on to it. Um, I think then, I think we need to read this contradiction as a as an intentional futility uh, in what the window weight is throbbing to do. Uh, it's it's trying to do something that it can't. The window weight wants to extinguish light, but all it can extinguish is air. Right. So even as you try to destroy this false image, this dream version of the lover and just, you know, actually love them as opposed to the, the God, the whatever you're creating, that's something you don't have. Access. You can't close the window on on the light. Uh, you can close but, you can close the window on air and we can uh, make a connection between air and speech and the speaking of the poem. Uh, the poem can end, as it were, but the vision that is prompts the poem continues. Right. So the poem is affirming a kind of a first principle behind love. That is, I, certainly some poets do take the stance that the image is the real thing. The image is uh, yeah. of the primary importance. But this is saying, no, there's really a thing between me and you. Right. No, it does, behind it, the scenes, pulling the strings. It does like seem to be, it does seem to be very platonic. Um, uh, well, well, being very not platonic. <laughs> also, it, you know, it's it's pretty optimistic about human relationships, and at least that bit is. Well, I don't know how, I don't know if we're entitled to read this as optimism, because... Philosophically optimistic. Well, it depends on whether you think that this, the fact that this, this first principle of love cannot be brought uh, into the light, and yet we are stuck with this light, that reveals a thing that is untrue is optimistic. I don't know that it is. Um, well, it's more optimistic than claiming there's no first principle and there's only fakeness. True. Uh, yeah. No, I can get behind that. And I'm, I'm, you know, for what it's worth, I also think this is largely right. <laughs> yes, I, I also agree with that. Uh, so <laughs> that's good. <laughs> uh, makes it easier. Yeah. Did we uh, with Emily Dickinson about God oh, in his Jesus. house? I mean, insofar as I understood it, I think so. This is this is end up being this is ending up being about very similar things, weirdly. 
Well, it's about a house. Only the last stand is about a house. It's all, I mean, I mean, we also just kind of have a thing for inside-outside metaphors. Ah, oh, they're very important. They're super and, important. And all poems are meditations on the nature of appearance. You can quote me on that. Okay, so the consequence of this. Yes, light. And it is always, always, always the eternal rainbow. Ah, uh, and it is always. So then weirdly... I don't know if this is, is that a typographical error? There is no uh, period after rainbow because there's no period there. And then the next line starts with a capital, which is not standard in this poem. Let me look at some of the other versions. Version. Mm. Some of them have it. Some of them don't. You know, I'm going to I don't see what that's adding. And he doesn't usually do typographical nonsense like that so i'm not going to pay attention to it if you're if you unless you want to pay attention to it um i think it reads nicer with the period me too so let's just assume that's supposed to be there uh okay so and it is always 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 the eternal rainbow and it is always the day the day of unkind farewell all right so i think that 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 ending makes a lot of sense with what we just set up uh there is always this eternal rainbow uh of the visible you cannot shut out the light it is always the day uh and the day and that's not necessarily a great thing because the day is the day of unkind farewell uh what do we make of the entrance of that that the entrance of that exit there hmm well um kind of my 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 first impulse is uh to refer back to the idea of distances. Mm-hmm. So going with this house metaphor, you and your partner are both in the house. Mm-hmm. But because there's always this distance between you, you're always like you're always saying goodbye. I, I don't know. That's, that's You're always reminded of that distance. And it's always painful. Just like, it's always unkind. Unkind, which goes back to cancel all your kindness uh-huh um and also right. can't unkind kind of mean unlike i was going to raise that possibility as well it's, i don't know if it can actually mean that in english but no it doesn't mean it in english but it 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 could be forced to read that <laughs> that way if we wanted to and and i think that it's not entirely irrelevant to read it like that in some bizarre hybrid of Latin and German, unkind means one child. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that 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 must be what it's about. <laughs> yeah, it's about how he and his uh, sailor boyfriend had a kid. Just one, though. <laughs> All right, got it. No, okay. Uh, right, okay. So there's always this. There's always a parting built into the light. the The light reveals distances. Uh, the light reveals uh, the distance between. Self and other, the light resistant reveals the distance between self and God, between other and God that, that it is construed as, uh, between self and Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, at first, my initial reaction to the phrase eternal rainbow was one of revulsion. No, I know, me too, except except now it, it, that we've, we've done this reading, actually the eternal rainbow as as this sign of this like painful mocking illusory separation a rainbow isn't real there's no physicality to it the rainbow is that which is visible and untrue right you can Uh, see it but it's not true and just the way a rainbow is divided into bars of different colors creating the illusion of separations when in fact there are no separations eternal rainbow is actually really good 
Right. Uh, the rainbow is also, uh, in its untruth, it is uh, the index of the true, right? Because the rainbow shows us uh, the uh, the whole range of, of the spectrum uh, in in a in a clarity uh, and a distinctness with a distinctness that we don't encounter anywhere out else in the realm of the real. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. This is super platonic. Yeah, it, it is. It's pretty hardcore platonic. Um, oh, what was that thing I just thought? Um, Which you know we might have got just from that damn title, "The Visible, the Untrue." <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, right. Um, so another thing I was going to bring up here, uh, and because apparently this is the thing we do, uh, the rainbow in the Bible, uh, God's promise to Noah. Ah, uh, sure. I mean, I, again, I don't think that's like a major meaning here, but. No, 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 but it's relevant. Yeah. Um, and also that is an unkind for like, that's also God distancing himself from man. Right. That's the moment when God is like, no, I am apart from you. I will never kill you all again, uh, which is going Ah, the destructive love in the first thing. The killing is is a sign of God's love, obviously. It's God saying that he cares about human evil. Uh, It's kind of like the abusive boyfriend who realizes that what he's doing is hurting the person he loves, so he breaks up with them. The end of the relationship. Yeah. Uh, It's also a sign of, of not of not caring, uh, even while it's a sign of caring, or rather it's a sign of caring about a principle more than caring about a particular, which seems appropriate. Uh, We also, given our Greek thing, should probably mention Iris, uh, goddess of the eye, the rainbow, who is, uh, who points us towards the distance between man and God because she alternates with Hermes as serving the role of the messenger the in-between between human beings and gods. And Iris is like an orchid, but for girls. But for girls. <laughs> <laughs> the girl orchid. Well, that all came together nicely then. And so the summary is Iris, the girl orchid. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Um. so uh, I guess we should uh, do a little recap and summary um, real quick. Has it been going on for a while? Um, oh, dear God, it's been going on for a while. Yeah, yeah. These not were supposed lot. to get shorter, not longer. Um, I don't know, man. Podcasts are weird. The, the road not taken one was... So we did, in fact, record an episode about Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, but our analysis was bad. So bad that I realized during editing that we just... It was just real bad. It was so bad and embarrassing. Unlike this episode, which is so not embarrassing. Um, But what was embarrassing about that one was uh, just our points were dumb and didn't show Frost the respect he really did deserve, even though we're kind of meh on the poem. Um, So that is a lost episode. And also why this week's episode is a little bit late because I was about halfway through editing that one when I realized that it weren't going to fly not good at all. Not like a blimp. Not like a silver zeppelin destroying the sky. No siree. Not like that. Nope, nope. All right, so what have we learned? Uh, 
Yeah, so let's just come up with our summary. Um, something about Zeppelins, probably, because Hart Crane's lover is an exploding blimp that's also an illusion god. The rainbow is the false appearance, which is the best index of the true. Okay, so let's 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 edit that into something reasonable. Um, so the rainbow is the false index of that which is true. No, the rainbow is the rainbow is the false appearance, which is the only index of the true. Right. The rainbow is the false appearance, which is the only possible index of what's true. The lover is an exploding zeppelin hidden inside your window. The l- no, no. The lover is an exploding zeppelin god that you created. And stuck inside your window. All right. The lover is the exploding zeppelin god that you created and stuck inside your window where you live. But you can't see you because you're in the house. Okay. Let's try to say that one more time. I'll say the first part. You say the second part. Oh, sure. Give me the hard bit. You can do it. All right. Okay. So we've learned that the rainbow is the false appearance that is the only possible index of what's true. And the lover is a zeppelin god that you created from inside the window in the dark with your lover, but you can't see either of you because you're in the house and you can't see inside the window frame from inside the house. And then Zeppelin go boom. Oh, we, we should probably say our final feelings about the poem too. All right. All right. I mean, the, the poem is speaking to things that I, to issues that I have thought a lot about and care a lot about. Um, I'm a little nervous that the excessive Platonism that we got out of it might have to do with the fact that I spend most of my time studying Plato. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's mostly there. Uh, Certainly the beginning and the end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm a little unclear if I feel like the poem works aesthetically altogether. Uh, I'm I love the Zeppelin stuff, but I also like man, like integrating it in there was a stretch. Uh, but I mean, he does create the equivalency there between Zeppelin equals uh, strophe, strophe equals canto, canto equals myth. <sighs> He does. He does. It's a weird way to construct a poem. I'll, I will say that. Yeah, yeah. I question the value of algebraic home construction. Right. I mean, the way that we decoded this poem felt more like decoding than any of the poems we've done yet. You know? Yeah. And like, yeah. I, 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 I'm skeptical about if that's the way it should feel. Like, uh, you know, even even the Dickinson uh, that we had to really crack through some stuff to get like, I feel like what we ended up with was something that on an intuitive level, a first read gives you in vague form. Oh, well, and I think this poem does that at moment. Like I think the strongest lines in this poem are giving you glimpses at the thing we ultimately arrived at. No, I agree. But there are other moments in it that we really had to struggle to fit in. Yeah, and, like the fucking um, the tally. Yeah. Staunch neighbor tabulations. Right. The staunch na- Having finished reading the poem and figuring it out. You, no, you didn't need that, buddy. You really didn't. Um, and it, it breaks the flow of a very beautiful first part of the poem. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that because this is so much more free verse than Hart Crane's poems generally are, and because it was apparently unpublished and written near to the time of his death, 
it really just might be an unfinished poem. Or a poem that he decided didn't work. Right. Or he may have submitted it for publication before he died. Who knows? Yeah, but I do think it's worth pointing out that the, the fact that this doesn't look like a typical Hart Crane poem might mean that he also was not fully satisfied with it or couldn't quite finish it, which doesn't mean that, you know, it's not worth analyzing as it is and that the ways in which it's different than a typical Hart Crane poem aren't interesting. But ultimately, I do feel as, as though it's there's a there's the ghost of a better poem in here. Which, yeah. I suppose I'm saying that the unseen poem is better than the seen poem. Maybe that was the point. Yeah, but general rule is you can't write a bad thing about how the good thing is not expressible in words, you know? No, that's 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 a crap move that makes me mad every time people try it. Well, yeah, because if you... Yeah, no, my art is bad because good art is impossible. And if you read my bad art, you'll see that that's true. <laughs> no, I won't, because your art is bad and doesn't make a convincing argument. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... And then there's also the fact that um, I don't know how much... I don't... I, I, I don't know how much intentionality, how much authorial intent... Uh, how much conscious authorial intent uh, is pushing towards the meaning we arrived at. Like, I think that is what it means. I don't know exactly how much he meant that. I think he did mean it because you don't come up with that weird ass window weight metaphor. No, I, 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 I'm, know, I'm, mo the, I'm mostly the last stanza, the last stanza, uh, really, I don't feel like we had any problems with our interpretation of the last stanza. And I think it's good hermeneutic practice to, assume that the ending is, you know, the most evolved version of what a piece wants to be. So on those grounds, I think we're pretty solid. Uh, I'm, I, I'm mostly talking about the, the, the middle two stanzas. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, I think he may start, he may have started out writing this, um, you know, this poem about this idea and then had a dream about a blimp exploding, worked that in there and then tried to kind of tie it back to his original idea. Yeah, I just don't know that you can fucking introduce a blimp exploding <laughs> in the second stanza of your poem that starts out about a flower, then drop the blimp and never come back to it. Yeah, then you I, drop a blimp and then you kind of clumsily tie it to a part of a poem and then the poem ends with a fucking eternal rainbow. I did end up really loving that eternal rainbow, though, which is really crazy. No, I know. It's crazy that he made eternal rainbow like he really earned eternal rainbow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, which I didn't think you could do. No, no, me neither. Um, and the, God, the idea of an exploding blimp in the middle of this poem is so cool. Right. I know that part of me is annoyed that we're being so hard on it because it's also the most daring moment in the poem. There's also it, something really laudable about it. Yeah. And it, it, it's not like and that, the blimp stanza certainly is not the weakest poem part of no, the poem. It, it, by no, far. It's, it's weirdly it's a it's it's maybe the tightest, like uh, just on a. You know, just on a first read, uh, you know, on a, on a on a superficial level, it's very tight. Like, I think maybe the poem would have been helped if he had strengthened the equation between if he had given just some more hints as to what the fuck the blimp meant. I mean, we, I think like it feels very clumsy to be like, ah, they will know the blimp is like the strophe because I used the same adjective. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's like that's a crossword puzzle designer kind of idea. No, I, I, I also have my doubts about it. 
I mean, and also, I guess my doubts are, I feel like, right, okay, I feel like there's there's two other possible poems that I, I'm glimpsing here. The one is a tighter one that that connects the first and the last stanzas and is just a really lovely sort of lyric meditation on on these questions about the nature of the visible and love. But then I also feel like there's a fucking another fucking crazy ass poem that really leans hard on this this equation of of the Zeppelin and the God, you know, and I want I want that poem even more. Uh, yeah, because th- that would be something different because that that would be fucking awesome. And, you yeah. know, and and maybe there's even a long poem that somehow bridges these two poems. But it's not it's not. I really don't like that third stanza the third it would be literally impossible to make anything of the second stanza without it it just feels like a half-baked idea well it feels like an attempt to try to to integrate the second stanza into the poem (laughs) right and and i'm glad he did because we would have been so screwed if he didn't oh yeah Mm. no it's very helpful of him but and it feels like he's leaning on this well what if i use ellipses to signify the distance between like it's very calculated to try to make sense of the weirdness that he's introduced obviously like oh geez i just thought of something you can read that you can read that stanza as him talking about how fucking different the first and second stanzas of this poem are yeah this trophy and it doesn't that invites an antistrophe that doesn't arrive or that arrives wrong and weird. Oh, and he's saying that the differences between them, like he knows that it's fucked up and wrong, but damn it, he likes it. Such distances uh, were not intended to deceive you. It doesn't wear an evil smile. Yeah, yeah. I'm not fucking with you. This is the poem I wrote. Yeah, all right. No, I, I actually totally buy that and it makes me like it a little bit better. I still feel like it's a little bit too mechanical of a solution. Yeah, it's although it's elegant to how it does that and it also tells you what the poem means. <laughs> yeah, no, that just that just bumped this poem up in my estimation, actually, quite significantly. Oh, and it's also doing that the canto bright with mint it's also doing that thing where um the silver zeppelin which is the silver strophe which is the first <laughs> bit of the poem uh-huh. is inside the second right uh, that, that's really cool actually yeah okay yeah okay now that 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 just cleared up my major problem with it yeah uh, mine too cool so you know good poem weird uh poem, but it worked like weird weird poem but if you think about it it works yeah, Which, but if you spend yeah. three hours talking about this four stanza poem, then um, then it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now I do think that truly, truly great poems, there is more of a connection between what you get on the first read and what you get after three and a half hours. Uh, well, I think that this is doing a thing that some poetry does, where it's more experiential and non-literal than older poetry say. Like the Romantics wouldn't write a poem that didn't literally make any sense. Yeah, I just, I think that there's a little bit of a disconnect between the experience of reading it and what you get in the end. Right, and yeah, I guess, yeah, no, you're right there. I think the experience of reading it is good. Uh, I mean, that's why we picked it in the first place. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, this is a cool poem. Let's figure out what's up with it. Um, So yeah, I like the experience of the poem. I like the conclusion we came to about the poem, but yeah, they have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, yeah. they're, well, not, well, not nothing. It's just not nothing because because 
they obviously had something to do with with trying to work out the nature of 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 the visible and if we take the visible to mean the surface reading of the poem it's okay i guess my problem is is that there are moments of uh such beauty and then there are moments that are just weird and ugly Uh, oh god well and then i almost wanted to say like isn't this supposed to re- reflect the experience of love? And well, I guess that does reflect the fucking experience of love. Never mind. Every, every time we, <laughs> all of our, our our speculating here about why this poem is going wrong actually is revealing just how much it's very clearly fulfilling its intentions. It's a good damn poem. Let's yeah, see I, that. I think you could cut the tabulations part though. Yeah, you could still cut that line. Like, that, that line is just not doing anything. Nah, it's really not. You know, I, well, no, it's doing one thing. It's creating space between five nail, five fingernail thing, uh, the fingernail that cinch the environs and the badges that cancel your kindness, which I think is necessary. You do need some stuff there between those two. I think it could be better stuff, though. Yeah, altogether, I don't change my opinion that there is there is a version of this poem in, in which that's doing all of these things, but doing them, I don't want to say more clearly, because yes, some measure of this obscurity is necessary for the experience, but just leaning into it all a little bit more. Yeah, and you know, if he hadn't killed himself shortly after writing this, he may have revised it. Yeah, good Ah. poem. I mean, also cool how we uh, we did manage to talk about a poem written right before a guy killed himself, and it didn't turn out to be about him killing himself. Yeah, no, it's definitely not that. Well, he was apparently a drinker, and, well, there's no way this man could write drunk. No. Um, I can guarantee that you can't write poetry like this drunk. Frankly, yeah. you can't write poetry drunk, Bukowski. <laughs> um, so I guess that's a little controversial. Well, certainly not poetry that clearly has been thought about as, as deeply as this. Yeah, he could not have... Have given us those little clues like the silver and the silver... Yeah, so I, I think this was written sober, and then he got drunk and killed himself. Probably. Probably not, you know, directly one after another. No, 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 I don't think I, so. Yeah, no. It wasn't like staunch neighbor tabulations. Who would write such an awkward line? I mean, he may have written that line drunk. <laughs> <laughs> um, Can't you just imagine him talking like that after a few? No, that's that's actually very true. Uh, yeah, you're staunch neighbor tab- Hart, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, the staunch neighbor tabulations. Yeah, with, with all their zest for doom. Oh, your blimp's exploding. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? 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 What are you talking about? Blimp's exploding. You know the silver trophy. Apollo? Oh my god, this is this is this is all it's all one half of a conversation that he's having with someone who when he's really drunk and the other person just trying to understand him. What? Like, Wait, what are you talking about? What, something about a puppet? Yes, I being the terrible puppet of my dreams. I'm a recovering alcoholic, so I can joke about it, even though it's very sad that this talented poet killed himself when he was like 30. It is very sad. But also, <laughs> that's a pretty funny interpretation. That's a, fu- that's a funny, that, that's not a serious reading. Go back to the one before that. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, I guess we should point that out. <laughs> just to be clear, that was a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Hart Crane clearly shows himself to not be a man adverse to dumb jokes with his blind partition. Wouldn't it be funny if I wrote a poem about a blimp exploding? Good old donkey albatross. 
Yeah, good old cow duck. All right, uh, we were supposed to, uh, throughout the podcast, replace... Uh, okay, so the joke is, heart uh, is, uh, the, is, a, is an archaic word that uh, refers to a young male deer. If you hear a little ukulele sting and then uh, future me comes on and corrects me, uh, then I'm wrong and it's not a young deer. It's actually an older male deer as opposed to a hind, which is a young male deer. Yeah, uh, he has a time-traveling ukulele. Don't tell them about the time-traveling ukulele. Oh, sorry, man. Honestly, uh, I use it to go back in time and ask the poets what they meant, and this is an elaborate scripted thing. Esoteric trade secrets. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the joke was that a heart is a deer and a crane is a bird. So what we were going to do is get his name wrong throughout the whole podcast and replace his first name with the name of some kind of largish land animal and his last name with some kind of uh, water bird. So like, um, you know... Uh, donkey flamingo but obviously we only remember to do this in the very beginning and the very end yep uh i may end up editing all of that out but we'll see all right um so this has been ee phone poem the podcast where we analyze poetry still working on a tagline um (laughs) if you like us uh subscribe on itunes or give us ratings there um a good rating is good bad rating is i don't know if a bad rating is good or bad i don't know how their algorithm works and if you want more information you can go to www.eephonepoem.com to find out more information um oh goodbye i didn't see you go out